If you want to be a public company in a carbon intensive industry, you're going to need to convince investors you still have a viable business in a low carbon future. And listen, this is not about becoming a renewables company. It's about being a responsible oil company. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, my colleague Ben Cahill talks with Mark Viviano. Mark is a managing partner and portfolio manager with Kimridge. Kimridge is a private equity firm which focuses on the development of low-cost, unconventional oil and gas in the United States. And Mark has analyzed companies in the energy sector for more than 15 years. Mark and Ben discuss the role of activist investors. They look at what lies ahead for U.S. shale, including looking at performance standards, recent ESG statements, emission disclosures, and calls for eliminating flaring. They then turn to what 2021 might hold for the oil and gas sector. I'll turn it over to Ben now. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Ben. Excited for the conversation today. It's our pleasure. Um, to start off, can you please just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Kimridge and who you are? Sure. So I spent the majority of my career investing in the energy sector. And, and up until February of this year, I had spent the prior 17 years at Wellington Management. For anybody who isn't familiar with Wellington, it's a trillion dollar asset manager headquartered in, in Boston. And the way it worked at Wellington is they valued career sector specialists. They've always believed there was a real competitive advantage knowing a sector better than anyone else. So I, I had spent the last 15 years investing in the energy sector. And if I stayed at Wellington, I probably would have spent the next 15 years in the energy sector. And, and, and the problem was the sector was broken. And I just became increasingly frustrated that the sector had become uninvestable. Originally, it was the flawed capital allocation and, and misaligned incentives that I think are well publicized by now. But increasingly, it was the risks associated with the energy transition. And at the same time, I had known Ben Dell and Neil McMahon, who were on the sell side at Bernstein when I started covering energy back in 2004. They ended up founding Kimridge in 2012 as a private equity firm, and, and I had stayed in touch with them over the years, particularly as they had embarked on, on three different activist campaigns within the US EMP sector. And despite being a private equity firm, they had identified the value opportunity that was emerging within the public companies. Uh, but they also recognized you need to push for reform if you wanted to unlock any of that value. So. I had started having conversations with Ben last year where I basically said, you, you want to do more on the activist side and, and I need the right platform to promote change. And if you look at the defense during what was a, a proxy battle with PDC in, in 2019, that, that company had publicly said, you know, Kimridge was this private equity firm opportunistically coming into the public market that they potentially had conflicts of interest and weren't fully aligned with long-term shareholders. So. So our idea was you launch a dedicated public activist fund, bring in someone with my reputation and relationships to run it, and, and someone that's dedicated their career to public energy investing, who had already been engaging with these companies on these issues for years. So I think it's going to be really hard for anyone to argue I'm not aligned with what long-term investors are looking for in the sector. So that's why I thought the combination was so compelling. I, I bring my institutional investing background to a firm that's already built a brand of activism and also has its own internal operating team. Unlike most private equity firms that back management, Kimridge is an operator. So they lease their own acreage, drill their own wells. We have a 
technical team out in Denver with our own geologists and engineers. And so I get full access to those resources. And I think it provides a much more credible platform for reforming the sector than just being a financial investor. Yeah, that combination of being an active investor and also an, an activist investor in the sector is interesting. And we'll get into to more of what that means to be an activist investor in the space shortly. I thought it would be helpful to take a, a step back and just talk about the broader context for U.S. shale producers. So a couple months ago, Deloitte published a study that got a lot of attention. Uh, and Deloitte claimed that free cash flow for the entire U.S. shale industry over the past 10 years was negative $300 billion, which is a pretty stunning figure. So can you just explain to us, how did this happen? Um, how did the industry destroy so much capital? And why did people keep lending to the industry, even though it had such poor returns for so many years? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, it's a staggering figure. Um, I think it all goes back to the history of E&P investing. And, and to be honest, no generalist portfolio manager ever really believed that upstream oil and gas was a good business model or even that the industry created value. But investors either believed that oil prices would rise or they were afraid they would spike. And most of their portfolio would have an inverse correlation to, to oil prices. And these EMP stocks offered leverage to the oil price. And, and there was tremendous dispersion amongst companies based on asset quality. So they liked the alpha opportunity within the, the sector through active management. And, and then shale came along towards the beginning of the decade. And you had this compelling intersection of technology and resource scarcity. The, the productivity of shale wells was increasing at a dramatic pace as completion technology developed, along with a better understanding of the subsurface. And, and we had just closed out the prior decade where we thought the world was running out of oil and, and, and prices had increased 4x during that period. So, so there was an opportunity to own this unique subset of EMP companies that could dramatically grow oil volumes on a short cycle basis with these positive revisions. The rest of the industry was stuck with five-year deep water or oil sand projects that, that typically fell short of expectations. And so as, as value rose for those shale companies and, and the underlying assets, it became this land rush where, where valuation metrics moved from earnings and cash flow to net asset value and, and acreage prices. And as long as investors believed in the scarcity, companies became more aggressive paying for those future resources. But listen, the, the thesis slowly began to unravel as those well-level returns that companies were advertising were not translating to corporate returns. And then the promised inflection of free cash flow was just perpetually pushed into the future. I mean, it's, clearly this is a, it's a cyclical industry. There are a lot of boom and bust cycles. There are lots of price corrections over time. But this deep down, downturn that we've seen in 2020 is not the first one we've had. I mean, we had a pretty sharp decline in oil prices that started back in the middle of 2014 uh, and a real contraction in the industry in 2015, 2016. So why didn't the larger correction occur back then? I mean, it seems like after that big oil price downturn and all the pressure on the industry, the access to the capital markets continued after that. Why didn't we see a bigger correction back then? Yeah, listen, I can tell you, Wellington was one of the biggest capital providers to the public EMP sector in, in, in 2016. We, we participated in a number of those equity offerings and, and sometimes some people like to blame this on investors that we were encouraging the behavior. I, I can tell you that was not our intention. We, we thought we were providing a lifeline 
to an industry on its deathbed at, at $30 oil, and that we would get paid back when oil prices recovered. The magnitude of the crisis should have served as a wake-up call and a catalyst for evolving the business model. But, but we all know what happened. Oil went back to 60, and instead of paying down debt and returning capital, the rig started ramping right back up and, and companies went back to promising double-digit production growth as if nothing had happened. And, and that's why we started back in 2017 telling these management teams that the model had to change. But to be honest, they didn't care. They didn't need us anymore at $60 oil, and they were just getting paid more as they grew production and, and oil prices rose. And, and we know what happened next. Oil stayed high for a couple of years, but the sector kept underperforming as the multiples collapsed. And listen, the, the, the growth in, in U.S. oil and gas production has been truly remarkable from an operational perspective, but it's just been profitless growth at the expense of both financial and, and shareholder returns. And, and I think the investment community has finally caught on to that. I mean, it's unfortunate that it's taken two crises uh, to the severity we saw in 2016 and, and 2020. But I think we're finally starting to see a, a recognition of the structural challenges within the industry. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, of course, oil and gas companies can't really control where the price goes, but they can control their own governance and their own um, corporate responses and planning. And I know this is an area that Kimridge has focused on quite a bit. So Kimridge published a research paper recently on how to fix governance in E&P companies uh, and, and correct some of the corporate behavior. And I think your argument is that the industry has done so badly, in part because the executives of these companies have the wrong incentives and the wrong structures around them. So can you dig into some of these problems and some of the governance fixes that you think need to be made in, in the shale space? Sure. I mean, I'm just a strong believer that the value destructive behavior we've witnessed over the past decade can be attributed to the misalignment of incentives. This is the only sector I'm aware of that could reinvest 100% of its cash flow each year with a return on capital below its cost of capital and then continue to increase CEO compensation as the stocks decline in value. I mean, despite being the worst performing sector on a three, five, and 10-year basis, there was a recent Wall Street Journal study that found energy was actually one of the highest paying sectors last year and US E&P companies saw one of the largest increases in median pay over the last three years. And focusing on median pay even understates the problem because it ignores a troubling lack of dispersion amongst the companies. I mean, we looked at the 12 E&P companies within the S&P 500. Eight of those 12 awarded their CEO between 12.7 and $14.3 million in compensation last year. The, the difference between the median, which was 13.9, and the lowest paid CEO was less than 10%. In other words, the penalty for underperformance in this sector has been trivial. And we come to the same conclusion when you look at the fact that the CEO dismissal rate has been lower in the energy sector than broader industry, despite the fact that it's been the worst performing sector with the highest number of bankruptcies. And we think the lack of accountability in the boardroom speaks to the power dynamic we highlighted in our white paper where the directors are beholden to the CEO because he's the one that controls the nomination process. It's why we feel so strongly about independent shareholder representation on, on boards. There's simply no accountability. Well, let me ask a question about the, the board makeup of these companies. I, you know, I think the industry has been criticized for not bringing enough of voices from outside the sector, outside perspectives, people who you know, have a background in other industries. 
And of course, there's the additional problem that a lot of people on the boards are appointed by the executives themselves. So what's Cambridge proposing to fix some of these things? Yeah, we've been a big advocate of diversity on boards, and, and that goes beyond diversity of gender and race, where I think there's general consensus on the need for progress. We've advocated for diversity of perspectives and experience and, and thought, and that means really having individuals that haven't dedicated their entire career to the EMP sector or energy broadly, because uh, you tend to get this insular thought process. And, and if you look at EMP boards, roughly 70% of directors come from the industry itself. Hmm. And in an industry that's seen so much value destruction and in an industry that's seeing real disruption from the energy transition, we think it's imperative that they look outside the sector for perspectives on how to address these issues. And we, we haven't been convinced uh, that companies are, are willing to do that organically. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the, the targets for the industry and how those are evolving. So there's been a lot of discussion about the U.S. shale sector moving into a period of, of maintenance capital. So total U.S. production was something, something like 13 million barrels a day about a year ago at the end of 2019. It shifted to a, a much lower position now. But do you think that companies are still too focused on growth? Um, and do you think that companies are moving a little bit too slowly in terms of adjusting their targets and their metrics and, and the benchmarks that we should use to judge performance? Yeah, I think, I think investors are highly skeptical that shale executives have, have found religion. I mean, we, we like to talk about the fact that discipline necessitates a choice. And, and at the bottom of the cycle, when prices are low, there's no other option. Companies are forced to reduce spending and lay down rigs and reduce headcount. And, and they make all sorts of promises on how they will behave if oil prices recover. But as far as investors are concerned, these management teams are guilty until proven innocent. The litmus test will come when prices rise and we can gauge industry behavior. We, we essentially need to disprove the thesis. That's why we've been so focused on introducing reinvestment rates at the bottom of the cycle so, so that there is a more prescriptive capital allocation framework for how these companies are expected to respond to the price signals while also providing greater visibility into, into capital returns. We're, we're asking them to draw a line in the sand and say, I won't spend above X. And then I think it does all come back to compensation. Have we actually changed the underlying incentives to reward the right behavior? And we made a number of recommendations in our most recent white paper for aligning long-term incentives with this new business model. And we argue for focusing on long-term free cash flow generation and cash on cash returns, looking at the actual payback on capital investments. I mean, no growth metrics, no fictitious IRR calculations, we're trying to address the underlying issues of aligning capital allocation and return of capital to the owners of the business in a mature industry with an increasing terminal value risk. Hmm. Well, we've definitely seen a run-up in oil prices in the last month or so. and We'll see how much that discipline sticks, I guess, as we head into, uh, into 2021. Uh, let me switch gears here a little bit. Cambridge has also focused a lot on ESG issues. Um, and I know you've published some, some research on this as well. So can you talk about what the oil and gas industry should be doing better on some ESG issues in terms of things like emissions disclosures, 
addressing flaring and, and methane leakage and a lot of these issues that have attracted a lot of uh, attention and criticism recently? Yeah, so, so we wrote our white paper on environmental performance to, to highlight two fundamental issues. The first one is, is divesting or avoiding the sector has no impact on the environment. So mm-hmm. the world still uses the same amount of oil. Consumption and the associated emissions is a demand problem, not, not a supply problem. Um, and connected to that is this idea that U.S. shale is actually well positioned on a relative basis for the energy transition. It has short-term flexibility that fits with growing uncertainty around long-term demand trends, combined with light, sweet crude that's, that's naturally a lower GHG intensity barrel. But, and, and you know, this is a big but, the industry is its own worst enemy. They have to stop flaring. They have to stop venting methane into the atmosphere. We need to move to science-based emissions monitoring and reporting, and we need target setting that is aligned with the Paris Agreement. I mean, if you want to be a public company in a carbon-intensive industry, you're going to need to convince investors you still have a viable business in a low-carbon future. And listen, this is not about becoming a renewables company. It's about being a responsible oil company. Yeah, we have seen some companies step up in recent months, companies like ConocoPhillips and and Occidental, uh, making clear net-zero commitments, setting out long-term targets, really making ESG statements and messages kind of front and center and investor presentations. But I'm just curious, what what do you think are the the pressure points now? And are we already in a place where responding to ESG pressures is becoming a critical issue for the industry and and access to capital? Or is that more of a a medium-term kind of pressure point on the industry? When we published our white paper this summer, we titled it Charting a Path to Net Zero Emissions. And I think, I think most felt it was too lofty of an ambition for the E&P sector. But, but as you've highlighted, we've subsequently seen both Conoco and Oxy come out with net zero targets. Now, now I'm not convinced that long dated aspirational targets on their own is the solution, but this is all about raising the stakes and providing a roadmap for investors on how the companies are preparing for the transition to a low carbon future. And, and I'm increasingly confident that we'll see others follow suit in this direction now that the precedent has been set. And you talk about, is it, you know, is it, is it enough? Does it, does it matter? I mean, I think preparing this industry for the energy transition has a number of components. And, and the first that we've talked about is the underlying operating model, the, the idea of reducing reinvestment rates and providing visibility into the return of capital and, and addressing that issue around terminal value and the uncertainty of long-term demand for oil. Uh, the, the, the second is, is environmental performance and reducing emissions intensity, eliminating flaring, aligning with the Paris Agreement for a carbon-intensive industry. And, and the third is, is the governance, right? Are, are you incentivizing the executives to prioritize things like the return of capital and environmental performance. And, and so we refer to those as, as our three pillars of reform. And importantly, they're, they're interconnected, right? On their own, one of them is not going to be the solution to attracting investors back to the sector. But we think if there's a holistic approach to addressing all three of those and, and addressing the deficiencies in the current model, I think you will see investors re-engage with this sector. Yeah, I mean, this is clearly becoming a huge issue for 
investor relations groups at, at companies, but management and executives too. You mentioned earlier that the Kimmeridge is, is both an operator and an activist investor. So I, I want to dig into what exactly it means to be an activist investor. How do you engage with companies? Um, I understand you've taken a, an equity stake in some operators and U.S. shale operators, but who do you talk to? Are you talking with boards, management, you know, IR teams? And how do you think about yourselves relative to other activist investors or outsiders pushing for reform in the industry in terms of ESG issues? Yeah, it's funny because someone just asked me the other day if I worry about being perceived as, as evil now that I'm wearing an activist hat. And <laughs> obviously I have, a, I have a very different background than your typical activist, having spent almost my entire career at, at Wellington. I mean, it's a firm that has one of the strongest cultures in the investment industry, prides itself on being collegial, putting the interests of our, our clients first. Um, but also uh, having spent 15 years investing in this sector, I think there is a general recognition of the sincerity of my efforts. I had spent the last few years trying to reform the industry privately. Everything I've been saying over the past year publicly is really an extension of that work. I just wasn't seeing the progress I thought was necessary to position these companies for the challenges and threats I saw coming. The analogy that I like to use is, is there was a train coming down the track in the form of the energy transition and, and I was waving my arms for these companies to pay attention. They didn't respond and so now I'm just going to try to shove them off their track for their own good. Does that make me evil or greedy or selfish, whatever the reputation of activists are? I mean, I could tell you I was not drawn to the role for the fight as many activists are. It's not my nature. Uh, but I've just seen enough, and, and this is basically the last resort. So uh, I'd categorize myself as much more of a reluctant activist. Listen, I had no idea what the reception would be on, on the corporate side, but I can tell you I've been able to maintain almost all those relationships through my transition from, from Wellington to Kimridge. I, I mean, I've had close to a dozen companies reach out proactively this year to, to better understand how they can align their strategy with the business model we've been advocating for. Just last week, I presented at the board meeting for a sizable US EMP company, and, and this is one we didn't have an investment in, but, but the research we had been publishing resonated with a number of their directors, and they proactively asked me to come speak to the board about the broader subject of, of evolving the EMP business model. And that's been our engagement strategy from the outset. Let's put our ideas out there. We'll work with the leaders in the sector to implement them, which will make it easier for us to push hard on the laggards. And then you get this domino effect because the industry's always exhibited somewhat of a herd mentality of following their peers. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely seeing uh, that the industry is pivoting and, and, and making a much more concerted response because a lot of investors are singing the same tune, clearly. Let me pivot a little bit and try to get your views on a, a slightly different topic, related, of course, which is M&A activity. So we saw a wave of deals in the fall in North America, some pretty high-profile ones, ConocoPhillips and, and Concho, Pioneer and, and Parsley, Devon and WPX, and a few others as well. There's always this anticipation of whether or not a, a, a wave of M&A activity is going to continue or, or, or happen, and usually it doesn't. But do you expect uh, big M&A deals in, in the next year? Do you think there are still attractive acquisition targets out there, companies that have good assets, that offer kind of complementary assets? but they don't have a lot of debt and, and the poor balance sheets. What's your outlook for M&A activity in 2021? Yeah, I think, I think one of the most encouraging developments in the sector this year has been the number of high-profile M&A deals that, that 
is likely to trigger uh, an inevitable wave of, of consolidation. And if you listen to the conference calls used to announce the combinations, the focus has really been around the increasing of, of free cash flow generation, accelerating the transition to a return of, of capital model, which is very encouraging from an industry perspective. And, and I think ultimately these M&A deals are helping rationalize the industry by putting the assets in the hands of more responsible management teams. Now, those deals haven't necessarily been rewarded with an immediate share price reaction, which is typically the catalyst for seeing follow-on deals. But if the combined companies can deliver on the financial frameworks they're outlining, I think the market will ultimately reward those deals, which will likely spur further consolidation. Now, to your point, many of the potential targets remaining are not in any financial condition to participate in that consolidation today, but but it's why we are likely to see M&A activity actually accelerate as prices recover and balance sheets are repaired. So so I'm quite optimistic on the outlook for further consolidation, you know, forecasting the timing and and the scale and the, Specific companies has always been challenging in this sector, but but I'm convinced that this is more structural than episodic. Yeah, and in terms of what types of deals emerge, I think we saw some patterns this fall, which was a lot of these deals were low to no premium. You know, they're all stock transactions rather than cash transactions. Do you think that's the the way of the future in terms of future M and A? Yeah, I think it. I think it's inevitable. I think the the challenge was historically to justify a premium on a shale company. You had to assume an acceleration of activity, and really the fact that you could bring forward the NPV of that resource base. And I think those days are behind us. I think the the justification for consolidation today is really about efficiencies and and cost reductions and scale. And that value creation from the, that proposition should, should accrue to shareholders, not in the premium paid to the acquired company shareholders. I think it needs to be shared across the investor base. And, and so I think there's a general recognition of that today. And I think you're, you're seeing this recognition that, that one plus one can equal more than two, uh, but you can't pay for that upfront. It really needs to uh, accrue to shareholders over time on the execution of the strategy. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the U.S. shale industry in particular has been through a, a pretty brutal year with COVID-19 and the, the huge contraction that was seen in oil demand. It's been a rough year for the global oil and gas industry. Can you give us your big picture outlook for 2021? Do you see better times ahead? Are you worried that there'll be kind of a cyclical uptick in oil prices and the industry won't address underlying problems? Or are you seeing a pretty fundamental change in the way that the, the oil and gas industry is evolving? Yeah, no, it's it's an important question. I mean, one of one of the questions I get asked is is why bother doing this at all? Can can you even make money investing in the energy sector anymore? And, and the way I would respond to that is I'd say we think there is a generational investment opportunity in the public EMP sector today. I mean, sentiment is as bad as I've ever seen it because the bearishness isn't cyclical in nature. Investors have structurally written off the sector. Hmm. primarily due to concerns around the energy transition. The, the pressure to not own fossil fuel companies is real, and, and it's compounded by this terrible performance uh, over the last five years in the sector. And, and so there is this circularity that only reinforces the negative bias towards the sector. 
And, and the spread in valuation multiples relative to the broader market just keeps reaching new record levels. I mean, this is exactly the setup you want in a highly cyclical and capital intensive industry. External capital is, is no longer available. The, the consolidation and rationalization is finally starting and no one cares because investors have broadly given up. So, so we think there's a lot of money to be made making this sector less bad. And we think we can be a catalyst for that. So, so I'm optimistic on the opportunity in the sector going forward. Yeah, it sounds like you're describing a scenario where it becomes clear uh, as demand returns that the industry has been underinvesting, uh, And maybe the, the companies that are better capitalized, more disciplined, uh, in better shape heading into the uptick um, in the market will benefit. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think when you see a crash in oil prices like we saw earlier this year, the, ins- the entire sector just trades on its beta to oil and its financial liquidity. And what the focus hasn't been on is, is really who's got the remaining inventory to drive the model that we've talked about, that, that who has the low cost assets at the front of the cost curve that can execute on a sustainable capital return model. And I think as that becomes more apparent, you're going to see more dispersion in the sector. And it's not just going to be about who's got exposure to rising oil prices, but who can actually execute on a differentiated model. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. This is a a great tour of, of, of the U.S. E&P industry from the perspective of an investor, but also an operator, which, again, I think is a pretty unique perch. So thanks so much for joining us today and sharing all of your views. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciated the conversation. Thanks to Mark for joining Energy 360 this week. You can find more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us at CSIS.org or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening. 